Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 189, The Gambler's Riot. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm going to be talking about the 1917 Red Sox season, and in particular, a so-called Gambler's Riot that took place at Fenway Park 103 years ago this week. Fans swarmed the field, and they tried to prevent the game from coming to an official end. Why? Well, because of the money, of course. But before we talk about betting, baseball, and Babe Ruth, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is the Cloudbuster 9, the untold story of Ted Williams and the baseball team that helped win World War II, by Ann R. Keene. Now, I have to admit that I haven't read this one, but I was shopping around for something tied to baseball and the Red Sox that went beyond the baseball field, and this book looks just fascinating. Baseball fans remember Ted Williams as the splendid splinter, one of the greatest hitters of all time. He had a reputation as a surly and standoffish star when dealing with the press and masses of fans, while simultaneously working tirelessly behind the scenes to support children with cancer almost single-handedly launching the Jimmy Fund. Like many of his peers in Major League Baseball, Ted Williams was drafted into the military. Unlike most of those peers, he chose not to spend the war years playing exhibition baseball for the Navy service team. Instead, he went to flight school for the U.S. Marine Corps and ended up as a flight instructor in Pensacola, Florida. In fact, he was on his way to the Western Pacific when the war ended. Seven years later, he was called up from the Marine Reserves to fight in the Korean War, where he flew 39 combat missions and was shot down. In 1943, while the New York Yankees and St. Louis Cardinals were winning pennants and meeting in that year's World Series, Ted Williams, Johnny Pesky, and Johnny Said practiced on a skinned-out college field in the heart of North Carolina. They and other past and future stars formed one of the greatest baseball teams of all time. They were among a cadre of fighter pilot cadets who wore the Cloudbuster 9 baseball jersey at an elite Navy training school at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. As a child, author Ann Keene's father, Jim Raw, suited up as the team's bat boy and mascot. He got to know his baseball heroes personally, watching players hit the road on cramped tin can buses, dazzling factory workers, kids, and service members at dozens of games, including a war bond exhibition with Babe Ruth at Yankee Stadium. Jimmy followed his baseball dreams as a college All-American, but was crushed later in life by a failed Major League bid with the Detroit Tigers. He would have carried this story to his grave, had Ann not discovered his scrapbook from a Navy school that shaped America's greatest heroes, including George H.W. Bush, Gerald Ford, John Glenn, and Paul Bear Bryant. With the help of rare images and insights from World War II baseball veterans such as Dr. Bobby Brown and Eddie Robinson, The story of this remarkable team is brought to life for the first time in The Cloudbuster Nine, the untold story of Ted Williams and the baseball team that helped win World War II. And for our upcoming event this week, I'm featuring an online author talk brought to you by the Massachusetts Historical Society. Cornell professor Mary Beth Norton is a historian of the colonial era and a past president of the American Historical Association. She's written extensively on the roles women played in colonial America, and her latest book is 1774, Year of Revolutions. 
She'll be speaking at 5.30 p.m. on Wednesday, June 24th. Here's how the MHS describes her talk. Mary Beth Norton will give us a preview of her new book, A Narrative History of the Long Year of 1774, or the months from December 1773 to April 1775, which have tended to be overlooked by historians who focus instead on the War for Independence. But John Adams, who lived through that era, declared that the true revolution took place in the minds of the people before a shot was fired at Lexington. The year 1774, Norton argues, was when that revolution occurred. The online event's free, but you'll have to register in advance to get the Zoom connection details. We'll have the link you need in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 189. Before I kick things off, I'd like to take a moment and thank Rob G., our latest supporter on Patreon. People like Rob, who sponsor the show for $2, $5, or even $10 a month, allow us to create Hub History. Your contributions pay for our web hosting and security, our podcast media hosting, and the processing tools we use to make the show sound better. Over the past couple of years, you've also allowed us to upgrade our microphones and start adding transcripts to the show notes. If you'd like to join Rob and all our other generous supporters, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And to everyone who already supports the show, thank you. And now it's time for this week's main topic. On June 16, 1917, the Red Sox were in the midst of a seven-game homestand at Fenway Park, and things were not going well. They'd started off with a 2 0 win against the St. Louis Blues on Wednesday the 13th, but the Blues rallied in the second game of the doubleheader, beating the Sox 7 2. The drubbing continued with a 3 0 Blues win on Thursday, and then the Chicago White Sox came to town. The White Sox were leading the American League, but the Red Sox were just three games behind. On Friday the 15th, White Sox star pitcher Lefty Williams led the team to an eight run shutout over the Red Sox while at the same time back in Chicago, the Boston Braves defeated the Cubs 6-3. After their star pitcher Ernie Shore turned in a mediocre performance the day before, Red Sox manager Jack Barry decided to let the new guy take a shot on Saturday the 16th. The new guy's contract had been purchased from the Baltimore Orioles back in 1914, but after performing inconsistently and developing a reputation as a loose cannon, he was sent down to the minors to play for the Providence Grays. After a year in Providence, new guy Babe Ruth came back to Boston and started to play a bit more during the Red Sox World Series winning seasons in 1915 and 1916. By the 1917 season, the Babe was starting to develop a reputation as a pitcher with potential. Despite dicey weather for baseball, 9,405 fans filled the stands at Fenway that Saturday, eager to see if the young, up-and-coming Babe could break the Red Sox three-game losing streak and get the winning season back on track. Among those in the crowd who were hoping for a Red Sox win were a significant crowd of gamblers. I know it sounds far-fetched today, because over a century later, there's just no such thing as sports betting in America. Except Vegas Sportsbooks, FanDuel, DraftKings, Pete Rose, and your local bookie. In a 2012 article in Baseball, a journal of the early game, Jacob Pomrenka says, As long as there's been baseball, there's been gambling on baseball. In the middle of the 19th century, as the game began to spread in popularity among so-called gentlemen, 
members of the upper class playing for leisure, wagers were made for a meal or a small sum of money. This was an accepted practice among fans, and often players, because then and now many people found it enjoyable to be financially invested in the outcome of a game. By 1877, there was already a scandal involving game-fixing. Now, 40 years later, the White Sox roster that faced the Red Sox at Fenway Park already included some of the players who'd go on to be banned from baseball for life after throwing the 1919 World Series to benefit a group of gamblers and bookmakers. Most famous of all was shoeless Joe Jackson, who may not have even been part of the scheme, and who would, as a fictionalized character in Field of Dreams, played by Ray Liotta, say, I play for food money. And on June 16, 1917, it was Shoeless Joe who first put the White Sox on the board with an RBI double in the top of the first inning, just as a stubborn drizzle started up. The gamblers who hung out in the right field bleachers hoped that the left-handed Babe would be able to put up a win against the White Sox, who notoriously struggled against lefties. Pomrenka claims that among the bookies in the crowd were Joseph Sport Sullivan and Jim Costello, both of whom would be implicated in the Black Sox scandal just two years later. Pomrenka lays blame for the prevalence of gamblers in Fenway Park at the feet of the team's owner. By the middle of the decade, as theater mogul Harry Frazee took over as owner of the Red Sox, the city was regarded as the biggest center of baseball gambling in the country. An American League investigator claimed that Frazee entertains more gamblers in his right field pavilion every day than the rest of the majors combined. A 1917 Washington Times article would say, Boston is a hotbed for the do's and don'ts, as they call baseball gamblers in New England, the boys who bet on every batsman. They hang up money on whether or not he reaches first. Once there, they'll bet he won't reach second, or third, or home, as the case may be. Baseball pools have flourished more around New York and Philadelphia than they have in Boston, but the do's and don'ts have always done a big business in the hub. They generally operate back of third base at Fenway Park and behind first base at Braves Field. Frazee would claim that he employed police details specifically to suppress gambling within the park, but few arrests ever ensued, while bets were placed brazenly enough that the Chicago Tribune would write, Anyone present can see the transactions and hear them plainly. After Joe Jackson scored the first run on June 16th, the Red Sox struggled to answer the White Sox in the first and second innings. The next day's Boston Globe sports page would say, The champions failed to deliver in the first and second when they had chances to score. Hooper singled in the first and was left stranded on second after Barry sacrificed. And in the second, Walker doubled and Thomas beat out an infield hit, but Ruth wasn't there in the pinch. Gandil drove in the second run for the visitors in the fourth, just as the rain-check athletes started to warm up. Two were out when Ruth passed Felsch, who romped to second on a pass ball. Gandil's second did the rest. Almost as soon as Gandil put up the White Sox's second run, the rain began to fall harder. A few fans who were stranded in the outfield bleachers decided to make a run for it, and sprinted straight across the field in the middle of the inning, to take shelter in the right-field pavilion. The umpires called time, and the game was stopped for several minutes to make sure the interference was over. When play continued, Babe Ruth promptly got the third out. Scattered shouts of, Call the game! 
could be heard in the stands as the White Sox took the field in the bottom of the inning. Those shouts became widespread as White Sox pitcher Eddie Sukkot struck out three Red Sox batters in a row. As the game went into the top of the fifth inning, a critical moment arrived for both gamblers and casual fans at Fenway Park. If a game proceeded past four and a half innings before being called for rain, the standings of the game became official. Those official standings would mean that a lot of batters who were counting on Babe Ruth's left-handed pitching to lead the Red Sox to an easy win would lose a lot of money. If it was called before four and a half innings were completed, the stats and standings would be wiped out and the game would be played again. In this case, it probably would have been replayed the next day, eliminating a rest day before the Red Sox-White Sox doubleheader on Monday. If it was called before four and a half innings were completed, fans in the stands would also be issued rain checks to attend the replayed game. The Boston Globe reported, Anyway, it could be seen that there was trouble brewing in the fifth. The cry of call the game increased when Shock, the first man, came to bat. He flied to Walker, and as Sakat grounded to Barry and Shono Collins stepped to the plate, over the fence the crowd came. It was from that part of the first base bleachers where the so-called sporting men congregate daily that the first cries of call the game were heard, and it spread like wildfire. So after the babe got the first two batters in the White Sox lineup out, the crowd rushed onto the field. Pomrenke says, As leadoff hitter John Shano Collins stepped to the plate for the White Sox, all hell broke loose. A crowd of about 300 fans from the right field bleachers, led by some tall man in a long raincoat, suddenly began leaping over the fence and marching onto the playing field. Barry McCormick, a former Chicago Cubs infielder in his first season as a Major League umpire, immediately called time and stood gazing in amazement to see what the crowd would do. But they didn't rush at the players or umpires, the Chicago Tribune reported. Instead of fighting, the mob simply surged out upon the field, clear up into the diamond, and stood around. They were obviously stalling for time. Umpire Tommy Connolly looked around for police officers to help herd the mob off the field. He saw none. Five officers were somewhere in the stands, but they couldn't be found. The Globe reported, Those who were on duty were not on the playing field as they have been in former years, and unquestionably the psychological effect of the presence of the men in blue would have deterred the invaders from scaling the fence. Connolly and Red Sox manager Jack Barry took charge and approached the leaders of the mob, persuading them to leave the field so the game would not have to be forfeited to Chicago. The fans did not retreat to their old seats in the bleachers, but climbed into the grandstand boxes instead. Just when play was about to resume, new leaders and recruits came from the gambler's stand. Then the first crowd piled out of the boxes again. This time, the mob was riotous. Connolly looked for a cop again, and again none were in sight. The Red Sox ran for the dugout and took shelter in the clubhouse. The White Sox attempted to follow, but the crowd on the field didn't feel obligated to clear any sort of path for them. Instead the White Sox would be forced to fight their way off the field. Mercurial third baseman Buck Weaver grabbed a bat. Without letting his smile waver, he started wailing out in every direction. Chicago backbencher Fred McMullen just put up his dukes and challenged all comers. When police sergeant Louis Lutz finally materialized out of the crowd, he had to deal with White Sox catcher Ray Schock before he could start dealing with the crowd. The Globe said that Schock 
questioned the courage of a patrolman from the Boylston Street station in language not of the parlor. It was rumored that Sergeant Lutz went looking for shock after the game, to see if he wanted to step outside and repeat some of what was said before. Before that, though, both teams had to get undercover in the clubhouse, which they finally did. They stayed down there until the weather stopped, and until a detachment of mounted Boston cops could drive the fans off the field. Finally, they were successful. Jason Pomrenka would write, Umpires McCormick and Connolly ordered the game to go on, but they encountered resistance from a surprising source. Harry Frazee, the Red Sox owner who stood to make about $7,000 in gate receipts if his team got one more out and the game became official, inexplicably refused to permit his groundskeepers to remove the canvas tarpaulin that had covered the field while rain was falling. McCormick pulled out his watch and gave Frazee an ultimatum. Remove the tarp or forfeit the game. Frazee finally relented. The infield dirt was still somewhat muddy, so sawdust was spread to make the field playable again. The Boston Globe reported, There was a delay of 45 minutes before play was resumed. It never should have been continued, as the grounds were in an unfit condition. So the game went on. For a while, it looked like it might turn into a shutout and by the end of the sixth inning, the White Sox had a 3-0 lead. Then in the eighth inning, the Red Sox closed the gap a bit. Here's how the Globe described it in genuine 1917 sports page gibberish. The Red Sox rally in the eighth, which was good for two runs, woke things up. Ruth singled for a starter and was forced at second by Hooper. After Barry skied to Felsch, Hooper counted from first on Hobby's double, and a single by Gardner tallied the dentist. Weaver made a fine stop of a rap from Lewis, but failed to get Gardner when he made the play at second. Walker then hit weakly to Sakat. That was good enough to make it a 3-2 game, but the White Sox walked away with it in the ninth. Chicago scored four times in the final inning, including a massive home run by Buck Weaver that sailed over the left field wall that would later be painted green and dubbed the Monster. After seeing him swing that bat at Red Sox fans who took the field in the fifth, the crowd didn't take too kindly to his homer, and he'd end up dodging bottles on the way out of the stadium later. Prosecutors also didn't take too kindly to the way he swung that bat. Pomrenka explains, Weaver was out of harm's way physically, but not legally. When the White Sox returned to Fenway Park on Monday, June 18th for a Bunker Hill Day doubleheader, he and teammate Fred McMullen were served with arrest warrants between games. A Boston fan, Augustine Joseph McNally, a 37-year-old paper mill worker from Norwood, had filed assault charges against the pair stemming from the gambler's riot. With tongue planted firmly in cheek, the Chicago Tribune reported that During the fussing, McNally is supposed to have bumped McMullen's fist with his eye. Also, he's supposed to have had his fingers on the railing just when Weaver let his bat fall. Because the White Sox were scheduled to begin their 27-hour train ride home immediately after the second game, the hearing was deferred until Chicago's next trip east in the summer. Nathan Tufts, the district attorney of Middlesex County, put up his house as security that the players would appear in court when they returned to Boston. The spectacle at Fenway Park kicked off a crusade against gambling that would culminate in the Black Sox scandal. It was no longer possible to turn a blind eye to the gamblers who infested Fenway Park, even affecting the integrity of the game. The Sporting News reported, the result is one of the most disgraceful scenes ever witnessed in a major league ballpark. 
A riot of fans incensed at what are believed to be unfair decisions by umpires is one thing. But when a horde of gamblers, permitted to run riot in a major league ballpark, seek to stop a ball game and urge hoodlums to attack visiting players to save their dirty coin, that is still another thing. All the rowdyism that could be crowded into a season cannot do the game half as much damage as the one incident that occurred in Boston last Saturday. American League President Ban Johnson would be very critical of Red Sox owner Harry Frazee, saying, Gambling has never been tolerated by our league. If the Boston owners cannot handle the situation, the league as a whole will go after the gambling clique. Johnson first tried to get Frazee to go after the gamblers then decided to go after them himself when the Sox owner blew him off. Finally, Johnson attempted to force Harry Frazee out of baseball. White Sox owner Charles Comiskey appears to have thought the whole conflict was laughable and said, I have attended every meeting in which Frazee has been present since he came into baseball and have never known him at any time to take any end of an argument except one that would do the game good. The subterfuge under which Johnson would force Frazee out of the American League is that he has gamblers in his park. No greater joke was ever perpetrated. I personally know that Frazee has taken measures, as has every magnet of the circuit, to keep the gates of Fenway Park closed to the gambling crowd. Was any action taken against the Red Sox on the score of gambling under other ownerships? Why then should Johnson keep harping about gambling at Fenway Park under Frazee? If Johnson has the good of baseball at heart, he will lay off the gambling end of it and not be so interested in buying out owners in the American League. He has no authority to oust Frazee. Eventually, 33 Fenway gamblers would be arrested in December 1918. But by that time, the Red Sox were suspected of throwing a World Series game, as we discussed with Skip Desjardin back in September 2018. In fact, nothing suppressed sports gambling in Boston for long until the Black Sox scandal, which had been largely planned here in Boston. After a rest day on Sunday, June 17th, the Red Sox and White Sox would face off again that Monday. This time, the Red Sox won both games to their doubleheader, and the White Sox headed home. The next time the White Sox came back to town in September, charges against McMullen and Weaver were dropped, when their accuser didn't show up in court. The Red Sox would finish out the season four games out of first place in the American League, and the White Sox would end up as the World Series champions. To learn more about the Gamblers' Riot at Fenway Park, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com 189. We'll have a link to Jacob Pumrenka's article in Baseball, a journal of the American game. In case you couldn't tell from listening, I relied very heavily on his research in setting up this episode. We'll also include a link to coverage of the so-called riot in the Boston Globe and a hand-drawn cartoon that appeared in the same paper, poking fun at the Gambler's Riot. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and the Cloudbuster 9, this week's Boston Book Club pick. Before I wrap up, I'd like to share some exciting news. Hub History has been selected to receive this year's Preservation Achievement Award by the Boston Preservation Alliance. In their release, the BPA says, Boston has always been a city built on history. Museums, iconic buildings, and monuments are an essential part of the city's self-definition and tourism draw. Today, more than ever, that history spreads beyond physical places. The Hub History podcast tells stories of Boston's history through a medium that has surged in popularity. Their efforts bring Boston history alive 
by making the past accessible and relevant to a wide audience far beyond the bounds of familiar sites. Greg Gaylor, the executive director of the Boston Preservation Alliance, says, The means to engage people with the history of Boston have grown dramatically, and the Hub History podcast is a wonderful way to expand the connection of the broader public to our past. The more people who are informed and enthusiastically connected to the stories of the places and people of Boston, the more engagement we have with the desire to preserve these places for future generations. To understand a historic place and the events that happened there is to recognize its value and its connections to lessons valuable to us today. It's an honor to be recognized, not only as history nerds, but for spreading an understanding of history that can help Boston preserve its valuable historic buildings, landscapes, and communities. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line, and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. Listeners.